Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 204, The Rise of Industrial Militarism. From the start of the Seven Years' War in the 1750s to the end of the Napoleonic War, British men were much more likely to participate in volunteer duties to represent their military in wars across the world. As in other major European powers, as Professor Linda Colley put it, In Great Britain, it was training in arms under the auspices of the state that was the most common working-class experience in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, not working in a factory or membership in a radical political association. British militarism had been rising for some time now. During the 18th century, as Europe was moving away from the two former methods for creating armies— The first, and a long feature for most armies, was the role of feudal obligation. Your duty was to your lord first, then to the king or queen, and through them to your country. This meant, of course, that you were responsible for representing your lord via either pike, polearm, or sword, depending on how wealthy you were. In the High Middle Ages, this started to change as more and more militia turned into professional mercenary armies. These armies likely began as medieval free companies, or hired soldiers, warriors, or thugs, that were employed by various private entities and were a big part of the Hundred Years' War, for example. This began to change and migrated into more formalized and organized armies, some of which were heavily represented in places like what is now Switzerland, in other parts of Germany, in Italy, and all of these armies were for hire and were key to financing those local communities and keeping the population employed. In some cases, largely all of their employment was effectively in these militaries. As an example, in the American Revolution, the British hired 30,000 German Hessian mercenary troops serve against the colonists. This, of course, the colonists were not fond of, and they were even mentioned in the Declaration of Independence for being brought over as a band of foreigners to attack the colonies. Yet, some of these men would even stay in the burgeoning new country and would be a part of its newfound existence, which seems kind of odd considering that they were on the other side during the war, but there you are. Sometimes that's the way it works. Though the British had strengthened its navy during that century, and it was representative as a global power at this point, its army was still relatively small 
at the beginning of that century. This would all change as the century wore on, and by the end of it, British volunteers made up the vast majority of the forces now fighting for the crown against the French. Some of these volunteers were more voluntold, but we'll get to that as well at some point. The start of the wars of the Republic of France from 1793 to 1801 created the initial need to build up forces like these. The British army would never threaten the might of a continental army, but it was meant to work in tandem with other allies in keeping the French in check from dominating both sea and ground. With the end of the Republic and the rise of the Emperor Napoleon, a second and much more decisive phase of the war began. This was the main war that raged from Madrid to Moscow as the French conquered much of the continent and put pressure on Britain. As we discussed before, Napoleon had tried to isolate Britain through economic warfare because after Trafalgar it was apparent there was no way they could threaten Britain through sea power. The Berlin Decree of 1806, for example, forbade the import of British goods into Europe, especially among the countries that were allied or dependent upon the French, which were at that point most of them. This, as I said, included most of Germany, Austria, Italy, and many of the Eastern Slavic nations, stretching from the edge of the Ottoman Empire to the Russian Empire and then into the West, into Spain. Instead, he would establish what is called the Continental System in Europe, an EU, if you will, before there was such a thing, centered on the French economy. All of these connections were then to be cut, even delivery of mail, to Britain. A number of the French officials thought that in isolating Britain from the continent, that they would be able to force the British economic influence out of Europe. Though the French designed the continental system to achieve this, it never even came close, and a lot of black marketeering went on. The reason for this came down to the power of the British industrial capacity, something that it had tried to monopolize on, for the most part at this stage, with great success. As well, the broad colonial successes in the 18th century had created a vast area that the British controlled, and it allowed it to substitute things that it may have gotten from the continental powers now weren't as needed. And, as I said very quickly, a black market of British goods overwhelmed the boycott, and the inability of the French to accomplish their goals were made fairly obvious fairly rapidly. The damage to Britain was localized for the most part, and it only hurt somewhat during the years of 1808 and 1811. As I mentioned, the control of British-enforced oceans made the entire idea, if not pointless, then at least strategically not very useful. Ironically, blockading British goods did more damage to the economies of France and its allies because of their reliance on that same merchandise. It had created scarcity amongst them. French allies started to ignore the continental system, which then led to a weakening of Napoleon's coalition, thus allowing the British to continue to profit quite heavily from these goods. While economic and sea power remained uncontested, British land forces were generally too tiny to affect any real change 
or to win the day. The British army remained a minimal threat to France. The British standing army at the end of the war, or the height of the war, depending on how you want to interpret it, was just 220,000. By comparison, the French army of a million men and then the armies of its numerous allies and several hundred thousand National Guardsmen that even still Napoleon could call on, should he need it, created a force that Britain was unable, or at least unwilling, to compete with. However, the British did have a vast network of civilian assistance, something that had developed during this war that had never really existed before this and affected the overall ability of Britain to fight the war, this was partially due to the rising national sentiment, which was growing as Britain continued to fight and continued to strive to achieve success. And it was a part of what was going on in most of the European nations at the time, which is a rise of what we would call nationalism. This meant that the British military relied on army contractors who provided massive quantities of goods, everything from tents to food to clothing to rifles, to bullets, you name it, they offered it. And I guess I should say muskets rather than maybe rifles, but that idea nonetheless. This massive quantities of goods normally would have had to have been pillaged from the locals in the areas they were fighting, which of course would not make you popular amongst said locals. This allowed them to meet the demand that was growing in their military and to be able to continue to hold off and fight wars in many different theaters that they wouldn't necessarily have been able to do prior to this. Britain's burgeoning economic power allowed them to rely on bankers and speculators who funded supplies as well as subsidies to, the Britain, to Britain and her allies, revenue agents who were effectively tax collectors who would then go after people who weren't paying their taxes, and of course their fortunes would rise and fall depending on support for the war and whether or not there was actually the funds to even support the war from the local population. Nobles and economic classes became dependent on for many ways, including maintaining the normal activities and the amusements that civilians had come to rely on, something that you may not understand quite as being as important, but diversions and Keeping normality as much as possible is always important in a society where most of the able-bodied men are being uh, conscripted to fight in wars. The lower classes became sources for and beneficiaries of the war effort. Workers were to find new opportunities and new jobs at higher wages, but also began to strike and riot for more and better pay less work hours, and of course, many would serve in the military all over the world. Women were also active participants in the war in subsidiary roles that were just as important as any others. They would work as cooks, prostitutes, laundresses, spinners, and bandage makers, amongst many, many other roles in which they were expected to continue to help supplement the war effort. French colonial and merchant fleets, of course, would be threatened by the Royal Navy, which then worked to blockade the French as much as it could. Yet even with that, the French population and agricultural capacity far outstripped that of Britain, so having an overall work effort and 
war effort amongst the population was important. This would be something of a feature that we would see again in both in World War I and World War II as the nations were effectively completely enraptured in the war effort at that point. Because Britain was enforcing these naval embargoes, they did create problems for themselves. They would, amongst other things, seize American ships, goods, and in some case, impress, in other words, force, sailors on American ships who were perceived as being former British subjects into the Royal Navy. This, as you can imagine, did not sit well with the new country and created conditions where the second war between America and Britain would begin. And also the last war between the two countries, the War of 1812, would be a small sideshow compared to the larger Napoleonic conflict, but would have lasting consequences on both British North America and their allies, the native tribes who thought they could win rights for themselves by allying with the British. We'll probably talk in more depth about that war and the effects because of Welsh people that fought in it, but it's not a main feature of our story here but it's important to note the effect it would have on North America as a whole. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. At this point, it is good to remember that Wales was very much a part of the war in all aspects. They were supporters of the British effort, and they were not separate in that evaluation. While there may have been nationalistic people who were not and were opposed to the war effort and opposed to Britain in general, there was not a majority nor even anything close to a large minority who felt that way or expressed that, at least as far as we've been able to identify. So it's always good to remember that when you look in this context. And in fact, of the Welsh population, which there was only 4% of Great Britain's overall population, 17% of all the militia regiments in Great Britain were Welsh that served in the Napoleonic War. There were a total of 12 militia units in the war from across the country. Although it's good to remember that even though that's the case, they weren't always made up of Welsh troops. And in one case, one particular unit we're going to discuss shortly only had around 17% of its troop base that was actually born in Wales at the time. 
this is something that comes about simply because of attrition and other reasons, but they would start in the local counties and then as time would go on, things would get mixed up. It's one of the one of the issues when you look at regiments is specifically border regiments is how they could be mixed together and how sometimes the population of the unit wasn't necessarily very either English or Welsh, depending on the situation. So when you're looking at units for that kind of thing, it's much more difficult, as I say, especially as time went on. However, across the 1800s, there were two units that were created before the Napoleonic Wars in Wales and continued to have active roles to nearly the end of the century and in a couple of at least the one case, continues to exist today. This meant that the two major Welsh military units were a part of much of the Victorian era of British imperial wars. So let me give you a brief background, largely taken from the um, website for the National Army Museum. I will, however, add some context to further explain some of it, but keep in mind a lot of this is lifted from there. And because I just don't have the background or, or necessary knowledge to be able to repeat everything that comes about. So the first unit we're going to talk about is the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. This was a unit raised by Lord Henry Herbert at Ludlow in the Welsh Marches in March of 1689. It was created to help fight in Ireland against James II and the recently deposed king for those that supported William and Mary, and were definitely not uh, supporters of the Jacobin Revolt. They would first see action in the Battle of Boyne, a very famous battle in 1690. They also fought at Athlone in 1691, and in Ogram in 1691 as well, and then embarked for Flanders, where it served at Namur in 1695. Of course, at this point, much of the warfare that would be fought was no longer in England, but in Europe and in the colonies. Thirteen years after its inception, it was one of the earliest regiments to be honored with the Fusilier title, becoming known as the Welsh Regiment of Fusiliers. All of this is spelt very differently from how we would spell it today, uh, obviously because of how much time we're dealing with. You know, this was 300 years ago, and... So, for example, Welsh was spelled W-E-L-C-H, um, and Fusiliers was spelled very differently and very complicatedly. So, as time would go on, that would all be amended, but that's how it was spelled initially. The regiment was granted the prefix royal in 1713 for its actions in the War of Spanish Succession, which was from 1701 to 1714, which included fighting at Blenheim and Ramaz and Malpacat. We won't cover every battle that they fought, but we will talk in some degree about some of them because they are important and significant. But safe to say they fought in wars across the 1700s. They fought in the various wars of succession that went on between Spain, Austria, and elsewhere in the battles in Germany during the Seven Years' War, they were very heavily involved. And that would then lead to them being eventually retitled as the 23rd Regiment of Foot, and in brackets, Welsh Royal Fusiliers. This happened around 1751. 
And after the wars in Germany and the victory in the Seven Years' War, they were then sent off to the Americas and fought in the War of Independence. The regiment would be serving in a number of engagements and fought in at least two major famous battles, one of which was Bunker Hill, made famous, of course, by the fact that it was one of the biggest victories of the Americans in that period, and in the final battle at Yorktown in 1781, where it was the only British regiment not to surrender its colors or its, its flags because they were actually smuggled out as they were tied around an ensign's waist to keep them away from the Americans. They had also fought in the French Revolutionary Wars of 1793 to 1802, helping to capture Santo Domingo in Haiti, in 1795, and they also joined the Anglo-Russian invasion of Holland in 1799, where it fought at Alkemar in 1799. Two years later, it was then in Egypt, again fighting the French in Alexandria in 1801. At the beginning of the Napoleonic section of these wars, in 1804, the regiment raised a second battalion. This was the last British unit to leave Coruña in 1809 during the Peninsular War, which was a war fought in Spain. That second unit was then disbanded in 1814 at the end of the official first ending of the Napoleonic Wars. The first battalion, however, continued to take part in campaigns across the entire war, eventually finishing at Waterloo. There are many other battles we'll talk about and go into with them, but for the moment, we'll just cover that. We'll get them to this point, and then we'll go into their efforts during the colonial period to come in future episodes. The other regiment I wanted to talk about was the Welsh Regiment. This was a regiment raised in 1719 by Edmund Fielding. It drew its troops from independent companies of invalids and those otherwise considered too ill, old, or injured for active service. They were also recruited Chelsea out pensioners, men who had received a pension from the Royal Hospital in Chelsea, but lived in their own homes. So, in other words, it was not a unit of massive importance, but rather as a backup or, or reserve unit. Um, and it was retitled, um, rather inappropriately, the Royal Invalids in 1741, Ten years later, it was given the number 41 in the line infantry, and that was its order of precedence, in effect. In 1787, it discharged all these pensioners and gave up the Royal Invalid title and started normal recruitment ready for active service overseas. Until that time, it was simply used as a garrison for the naval base at Portsmouth. Its first overseas deployment came during the French Revolutionary War, the one we mentioned earlier, when it helped capture Martinique in 1794, it also took part in the attack on Guadeloupe in April of that year. The regiment was then posted to Canada for the War of 1812, in which it gained four of its 11 battle honors and took part in the capture of Detroit and the Battle of Queenston Heights in 1812, and then fought on board ship at the Battle of Lake Erie in 1813. 
In the 1820s, it would then fight in the First Burma War, and in 1831 was given a territorial title, becoming the 41st Welsh Regiment. And it would continue to serve in a number of battles across the history of Britain and would become an important part of the British Imperial forces and continue to be important to this day. So those are the two I wanted to talk about. We'll go in further depth about some of their experiences in the wars and efforts to come, because I'm sure we'll cover more of this whole affair of Welsh response and fighting to the various colonial battles that they would be involved in from Afghanistan to India to Africa to Canada to, you know, pretty much all over the world, China. Um, and all of these would become important places for Britain to achieve its ends, which is to become the biggest empire in the world, something that it would eventually achieve. With all of that said and done, I thank you all for listening today. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You, or you can reach me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on threads at the exact same uh, at Welsh History Pod. Or you can uh, check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And as well, if you'd like to help out this podcast, you can do so by donating to our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you all for listening. Have yourselves a wonderful rest of your day. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. 
Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.